Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Winging It with Vince Carter and Annie Finberg is back in full swing for its second season. Catch up on recent episodes with guests like Wyclef Jean, who talks about growing up in Haiti, hip-hop as a teacher, and performing with a goat. And you can hear from tennis phenom Coco Goff on beating Venus Williams at 15 years old. You can listen to Winging It on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. David, among the pieces of evidence presented this week by Rudy Giuliani associate Lev Parnas was a note he had scribbled on Ritz-Carlton stationery from the Ritz-Carlton in Vienna. What I want to know is if you were writing a seemingly incriminating note, what would you <laughs> choose to write it on? Um... What napkin? I mean, <laughs> or just what? Or is anything here? Yeah, I think anything. The, Sup, Super Eight okay. stationery. I was gonna say the Potbelly Sandwich Shop down the street does not have branded <laughs> napkins, as far as I know. Although the Dos Toros, I believe, mm. though that that would be a leader in the clubhouse right now. Um, dang, I let's see. I mean, to if if I want to be real here, and obviously that's the point of the press box and and this segment in general. The answer is probably either my hand. You still do that? Well, if there's a pin available, that's usually the big, that's usually what, you know, the, the barrier right there. I went to high school with you, and you didn't even write notes on your hand in high school. Um, I guess I developed later in life. I'm sorry. I had no, I had no idea. <laughs> Probably if I was going to write something incriminating, I would, I would open up the notes app on my phone and mm. uh, write, write, write the most, incri- write something incredibly uh, important. And and I guess by definition incriminating, and then I would immediately forget and never look at that note again. <laughs> David's Evernote account has been turned over to the <laughs> to the Democrats in the House. We are the back of the envelope of media podcasts. This is the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here. We got lots and lots to get to today. We'll talk about the bidding war that's coming for NFL announcer Tony Romo between CBS, ESPN, and at this point, probably even Turner Classic Movies. We'll talk about the legacy of Sports Center anchor extraordinaire Stuart Scott. We'll talk about good surprises and bad surprises that happen on live TV, plus the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But, David, we got to begin with Lev Parnas who feels like the int- most... Oh, well, let me take that again. But David, we have to begin with Lev Parnas, who feels like the most interesting person in the world right now. Parnas is, of course, the Rudy Giuliani associate, who's become a central figure in impeachment and now the Senate trial of Donald Trump. On Tuesday, House Democrats released photos, text messages, and documents that detailed Parnas's work with Giuliani and Ukrainian officials. Among them... This letter Giuliani wrote to Volodymyr Zelensky, Ukraine's president-elect, it begins like this. In my capacity as personal counsel to Donald Trump and with his knowledge and consent, I request a meeting with you. There was also a note scribbled by Parnas on Ritz-Carlton stationery. I know, David, when you make your to-do list, you always use Ritz-Carlton stationery. <laughs> that one read, get Zelensky to announce that the Biden case will be investigated. <laughs> Pretty cut and dry. On Wednesday night, in an interview with Rachel Maddow, Parnas said the biggest inaccuracy or lie was that President Trump didn't know 
he was trying to dig up dirt to aid Trump. Listen up. When you say that the president knew um, about your movements and knew what you were doing, are you saying specifically, and I want to sort of drill down on that, that the president was aware that you and Mr. Giuliani were working on this effort in Ukraine to basically try to hurt Joe Biden's political career. He was he knew basically. about that. Yeah, well, it was, it was all about Joe Biden, Hunter Biden. And uh, also, Rudy had a personal thing with the Manafort stuff, uh, uh, the Black Ledger. Mm -hmm. And that was another thing uh, that they were looking into. But uh, it was never about uh, corruption. It was never. It was strictly about uh, the Burisma, which included Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. Parnas would repeat that same charge in an interview with the New York Times. David, we can talk about what this is going to mean for Trump's Senate trial, but I kind of want to ask the general question first: Is wow, what did you make of all of this coming out right now? Yeah. You know, just, I mean, in a way, here, let me answer my own question. Were you as amazed as I was by the sequencing of this? That we all decided, like, weeks ago, or a lot of us decided that Donald Trump definitely did this stuff. And then now you get this super incriminating evidence almost after the fact. And I almost feel, of anything, it's it has less impact now because it's coming out at this point in the whole saga. If you're, if, if you're, if you're apt to be skeptical... You're inclined to be skeptical about any of this stuff. Uh, the rollout, I think, lended itself to that predisposition. You know, Rachel Maddow has done some incredibly valuable things and is in, very talented at what she does. Um, I was a little, I mean, just from the very beginning, her, I mean, obviously the Washington Post and the New York Times subsequently had big pieces on this, but when she sort of was like owning this story earlier this week, you, you had to sort of wonder if this is actually like the, either the most the wildest thing that's happened in the Trump presidency or just like some stuff that's being, you know, gussied up to make our moms watching MSNBC mad. Um, <laughs> but it yes. does seem to be that it does seem to be the former, right? I mean, this does seem to be like all true and legitimate. And th there are questions about the, like you said, about the, the sequencing, why it's coming out now. It really, and it really does seem to have just sort of snowballed in the sense i feel like it was was it just the beginning of this week that i felt like i you know his name started inching back into the news and it but they were just sort of this it was just sort of in the in the context of vague questions of what he might have you know if the if he might be allowed to offer what evidence he has and if he'll be accepted by you know the, the by the democrats in their impeachment effort um and then it just sort of all tumbled out right um it it does seem incredibly um incriminating uh and and it, it and you know the sequencing you're right throws into a little bit of question mainly because it does seem just so it's such like a a note for note sort of checklist of incrimination uh, of of Trump and Giuliani right i mean yes. the, the it's almost the most the most uh i mean the thing about it that that makes it mo that makes you most skeptical is just how kind of precise and all encompassing the the these accusations are i totally agree and i and and i guess i guess when i say sequencing i'm not really talking about it in a raises questions kind of way of why we're learning this now just just in terms of how donald trump's conduct with ukraine has kind of changed and 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 you know i don't know what the word is but just how it's kind of come to lodge in our minds like i feel if this stuff had come out one week after we read that initial readout of his phone call with zelensky it would have been like oh my gosh 
wow, this is so damning. Mm -hmm. But what happened is it came out after like months of the readout of the phone call, Trump basically kind of confirming all the allegations and unscripted comments to the media. So then it comes out now and it's actually this this feels like a key piece of evidence. But because it's after he's already been impeached in the House and because it's after we know so much, I don't know, it's just its impact startling as it is feels like it was diminished a little bit um but it's still incredible and like you're right there is something striking about it is like is there a piece of paper that exists that lays out exactly what donald trump is charged with <laughs> by one of his alleged henchmen yes there is <laughs> here it is there's even this is my favorite touch that ritz carlton memo there's even an asterisk before you know, I like gonna when you're making that. A, yeah, when you're making a to-do list and you want to make sure that the items are kind of denoted, right? <laughs> so, uh, so we're gonna get Zelensky to announce the investigation, and then pick up my dry cleaning, right? Do I yeah. need a new? Do I need a new router for my computer? I just love that. I know. Inevitably, all the items end up getting starred, and then you're kind of back to the beginning. It's like the the <laughs> Sneetches version of a to-do list. Um, yeah, it, it's um. It's it's just sort of unbelievable. Um, now, before the Democrats and, you know, just the people who are inclined to, you know, wish the the president would be removed from office, get out too far ahead of ourselves or their selves or, or over our skis or whatever you want to say. Um, you know, uh, many wise people have pointed out one, um, you know, Lev Parnas is not necessarily going to be even if he's 100 percent telling the truth, it's not necessarily going to be the most uh, believable uh, uh, um, person when when uh, called to testify, if indeed he is, and even the information that he's presented may not be taken at face value. And two, um, just from a practical point of view, I forgot who said this on Twitter, but it's uh, you know worth re worth repeating is that the Democrats, you know, even with even with testimony and evidence this damning, if it proves out, uh, are you know need to be careful not. Um, not to exaggerate, not to uh, claim anything that's not completely nailed down, because any any evidence of, um, you know, exaggeration or or any confusion, any any misstatement of facts is going to be just that's going to become the entire story, no matter how, despite how you know, like I like we've said, how exhaustive some of this, I mean, all of this, uh, all of this information is. Yeah, it becomes insert fake news tweet, mm -hmm. and then we're. We're sort of trapped in the vicious cycle. I think just in terms of the short term, Trump's trial in the Senate, uh, you know, this is this will just this feels like it will only put pressure on the Senate to call witnesses. You know, there'd been this question of, are we just going to consider what the House did, what the House presented us with, or are we going to potentially put John Bolton in there to testify? And just this sense, whether it's Parnas's specific allegations or not. It just I think it sort of tells the American public there's more to learn here. We don't know everything there is to learn. And we we already knew that because Trump was not being helpful with the investigation. But I think it puts in the public mind that there's more to learn here. And in this you know group of senators that has talked, you know, that really wants to, I think, make McConnell at least take a vote on this. Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, Lamar Alexander. That just sort of cinches in their mind that there's more here to do. Right. And. I think in the short term, that's the most useful part. I want to ask you, too, about some of the ceremony around impeachment. 
Did you catch the pictures or the footage of the eight impeachment managers walking the articles of impeachment from the House to the Senate? Yes. Yesterday. And then we've got John Roberts is going to be brought in to preside and all this stuff. I was just thinking this is one of those times that news anchors always use their, it's a very solemn ceremony, very solemn <laughs> moment of politics. Yes. What, what, what's happened to solemn ceremonies in the age of Trump? <laughs> Do they just seem ridiculous now because Trump has just changed the national tone to insult comedy? I mean, it, on the one hand, it should, it should be even more solemn. It should feel even more important. Oh, my gosh. Despite this president who's just ranting and raving and insulting people. Now the business, you know, government takes over. The Constitution takes over. But actually, to me, it, it feels, if anything, it feels diminished. Like this is this is silly. And Trump's just going to ignore all this stuff anyway. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you couldn't help but watch it and not think that they're trying to make a play for, you know, the, the TV audience, just like the president does at times. Right. I mean, they're sort of like fighting a PR battle as opposed to um, invoking any kind of real solemnity. So I, it's uh, I'm not sure that there's a there is a better way to do it. I mean, I think in some ways you do have to just sort of like uh, take things seriously and uh, have a little bit of a business as usual attitude. It's the only way kind of to get through this the situation, um, to put it generally. But um, but yeah, I mean, the, the the whole presentation just did seem a little bit unnecessary. In terms of the 2020 campaign, this is going to call four of the candidates back to the Senate. Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Amy Klobuchar, and also Michael Bennett, who is still apparently running for president in some way or another. <laughs> Do you think that's going to have any practical value I mean, this is the time normally when those people would just be camping out in Iowa because it's, you know, especially Warren and, and Sanders just desperately trying to win in, in Iowa. Klobuchar, too, I guess, for that matter. But mm -hmm. is this going to, do you think, change the trajectory of the race in any way? Um, I mean, it's it it definitely puts a focus back on Trump and, and on impeachment and um, you know, there were there were times throughout there have been times throughout the primary campaign where we all uh, I think everybody, um, especially those a lot of Democratic voters are, are, have been, you know, begging the conversation be more about the president and less about these, you know, sometimes microscopic differences between the, the candidates who were running for the nomination. Um, I feel like in some ways we've kind of we're at the other end of the spectrum now. I, I'm not I'm not sure. I think for some people it will certainly hone the, hone that message, the anti-Trump message, if that's the one, if that's the argument that they want to make. But I do think in, it it forces it it forces a sort of change of narrative, right? I mean, it's go, it's going to reconfigure the campaign. I mean, and and you know, even though it's still Democrat versus Democrat at this point, um, it's hard to imagine, especially if any of this Lev Parliament pans out. I mean, if this is if if if, if the if the impeachment trial takes a turn um then that's going to be all that anyone's talking about and then the and then the you know in the primary campaign they're either going to have to be solely discussing that and like i guess competing over who can tisk tisk trump the loudest or they're going to be making or they're or which is more likely they're going to keep on debating and be debating over things that like the american public literally doesn't care about right now so that's exactly the point nate silver made i think you you are absolutely right because the biggest effect is not those people being not being on the ground in Iowa. It's that the media is just paying attention to different stuff. The media is not paying attention to the campaign. 
and the media is paying attention to impeachment. So the the conversation. So how are you going to run around talking about how to pay for Medicare for all when everybody just wants to talk about the trial of Donald Trump? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's just going to put everything on hold because it's not like any of these candidates, you and I have talked about this after the various debates, it's not like any of these candidates have particularly differing opinions on what to do about Donald Trump. I think right. they'd all probably remove him from office at this point, at least the major ones. But it will just, I think, force people kind of into impeachment zone. And it really does. Doesn't it bring out the just age old question of how to beat Donald Trump if you're the Democrats? Are you going to lean into corruption, et cetera, et cetera? Or do you feel that's the mistake Hillary Clinton made? And the path to victory is just health care, jobs, taxes, red meat or blue meat, I guess, democratic issues. And anything about this is just going to get us distracted away from how we actually win votes in the Midwest. Uh, yeah, I, I, I that's a great question. Um, I think, you know, obviously for for Nancy Pelosi and, and, and again, we're going to keep talking about this because the TikTok of kind of how this level of misinformation came to the, you know, came to the public's eye and came to the, you know, senators, the Congress people's eye, the you know, congressperson's eyes uh, is, is going to be significant. Uh, it, I'm not sure if that had anything directly to do with Nancy Pelosi's calculus, but it wouldn't surprise me if it did. Um, all that is to say that the, you know, the kind of backstage argument that we keep that we keep hearing about and alluding to was, you know, Nancy Pelosi's calculus about whether or not um, whether it was even worth trying to impeach Trump on a public stage as opposed to just sort of let it, you know, concentrating on winning the election. Right. And for and for all of the anti-Trump and sentiment that all of these candidates have, have expressed and for all the, the that most of them have said that he should be impeached or removed from office. um they're implicitly running on the other side, right? I mean, the exi- I mean, they're they're despite what they say, they're they are they are you know, they are the examples one through six, however many are left of like you know about how we how we can go about removing Trump by just voting him out of office, right? I mean, these are people who are trying to remove him that way. So, uh, you know, I think that it's gonna, I think that, you know, they're going to have to. Uh, they're they're going to have to wrestle with this. I mean, it, it it is a sort of implicit conflict, even if they're even if they fully believe that he should be removed from office, you know. And and the more they talk about impeachment, the less they're kind of making a proactive case for their own candidacies. David, it's time now for the overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Please send your nominees to at the press box pod, where they are always gratefully received. As a result. Of this week's revelations, there was a kind of side story we didn't even touch on. Was it whether Ukraine, and this is from Parnas's text messages, was actually following former Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch? It was just incredible. There was some kind of surveillance going on. Uh, Ukraine is now opening an investigation to see whether Giuliani's associates were participating, possibly in some effort to surveil her. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, Giuliani finally got Ukraine to open an investigation. (laughs) Right one. Thanks to Jam Dad for that. David, you'll appreciate this as an art director. Before Tuesday night's debate, the New York Times art department made one of those graphics where they basically have head-to-toe shots of the six Democrats in the debate all Uh against a single-color background kind of looking out at the uh, viewer there from your computer screen. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, is this Weezer? 
thanks to <laughs> Tim Sampson. Uh, finally, there is billionaire presidential candidate Tom Steyer. We talked Wednesday about Steyer inserting himself into that tense post-debate conversation between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Well, oh, we got yeah. audio of that encounter this week, and Steyer can be heard uttering this. I don't want to get in the middle. I just want to say hi, Bernie. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write. Never, ever in my life did I think I would relate to Tom Steyer this much. Thanks to <laughs> David Uberti. If you found the idea of Tom Steyer being relatable to other humans inherently funny, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. All right, David, the notebook dump. I want to start with Tony Romo. He's going to All call right. Sunday's AFC championship game on CBS with Jim Nance. But Tony Romo's contract runs out after this season. And Michael McCarthy over at Front Office Sports reports that ESPN is readying an offer to steal away Romo from CBS. It's a multi-year deal, McCarthy writes. It would pay Romo between $10 and $14 million Whew. annually, according to sources. $10 and $14 million. If, if you want some context here, like the big analyst on a network football A-team uh, makes like six or seven million dollars. That's where but Troy Aikman them. makes that much. Yeah. Let, well, let's say he. In, that's the range. That's the going rate without right. without knowing Troy salary off the top of my head. What do you that what is do you a make? lot of money. That is a lot of money. What do you make of the whole idea of paying Tony Romo that much to steal him away and presumably put him on Monday Night Football? Um, it's, I mean, listen, it's hard sitting in the seat that I'm sitting in, um, having all the conversations that we've had any number of times to not look at that number and say, um, would that buy, uh, 250 journalists? Like would that, <laughs> would that, would that, would that, but I mean, literally how many was it two? Is, is that just a, is that a good estimate of the number of people who have been let go by ESPN in the past, uh, in the past five years that could be rehired for that amount of money? It's, yeah. it's hard not to, it's not hard not to immediately go there. Right. Um, on the flip side, you know, if we're going to talk about the distinction between $6 million or $8 million and $14 million, I mean, it's it, in some, in some sense, it's funny money. Right. Or, and, and it's, it's, if, it, if they have the money to spend, you know, and, and certainly the parent company has uh, that much money, many, 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 many times over, um, you know, you go out, if, if, you, if you, you go out and you get your, you, you, you get your dude. Right. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, someone like Tony Romo is worth the amount of money that Tony Romo is going to get. And, and if yes. you're, and if you're not, if you're not the home team, to use the sports metaphor, um, and 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 if you're not, by the way, if you're not running a, a nationally, I mean, if you're not running a a network, a weekly network television show, which so presumably the prestige would be a little bit lower, you might have to pay a lot more. So maybe that's mm -hmm. just the number that they would have to pay. Now, all of that, I mean, but but all that aside, it does beg the question: like, how many millions of dollars? of additional eyeballs of additional ad revenue of additional, however you want to quantify it would Tony Romo sitting in the Monday night football booth really bring in. I don't think it would ever bring in enough to justify the money on its own terms. And I don't think that's just Tony Romo. I think you could say that about every single announcer in the history of announcing maybe a Howard Cosell 
or John Madden to cite two of the familiar ones would, would be able to boost enough. I'm not saying to cancel out their salaries, but would have like a discernible effect on the ratings. I just can't imagine that there's just about anybody else who really does. And that's the funny part of announcing, right? Like I, of all people pay attention to these people a lot. Like I'm mm-hmm. I, when I'm watching the AFC championship game on Sunday, I'm going to be paying attention to what Tony Romo says. But even if Romo is fantastic, is like at the height of his powers, like he was last year at this time. Will that just increase my enjoyment of the game more than 10 percent versus generic Phil Sims at the end of his run announcer guy? I don't think so. So I can't well, imagine you know, Joe six pack from Cleveland, like watching who wasn't going to watch an NFL game on a Monday night. Now wanting to watch it because Tony Romo's on there. And again, that's not an insult to Romo. I just think I'd say the same thing about everybody announcing a game right now. Well, you mentioned, you mentioned Madden, right? And, and I think that there's, you know, I don't think Tony Romo is at that, that level. I mean, he's not one of the, if he retired tomorrow, I don't think he'd be in the, you know, the NFL announcers hall of fame or whatever, but, the last time, you know, Madden got paid. I mean, when he got that the the gigantic, uh, you know, Fox Sports NFL bag, nineteen ninety four. Yep, nineteen ninety four. Uh, you know, you could have you could argue at the time about whether or not he was worth the dollar figure that he got. The, the, he was getting paid by Fox to legitimize their new operation, right? Yes. I mean, he was getting he was he was getting paid to be the face of football on a new network and now we're used to these rights packages jumping you know jumping from channel to channel and kind of having to seek them out by google search every time you want to watch a game but back then you know the fox buying the nf the rights to nfl games was you know kind of a shock to the system for a lot of viewers who are used to just watching the exact same way every week their entire or most of their lives and so that's what the value of a lot of the value of madden was built into you can kind of see a little bit of that in the espn's pursuit of tony romo because, you know, they they pay a lot of money for Monday night football games that fewer and fewer people are watching every year and that have less and less significance every year to the point where you'd be forgiven if you, you know, were a casual NFL viewer that didn't even realize games were being played on Monday. And the and hiring someone like Tony Romo uh, or hiring only Tony Romo, I think he's the only person you can really put in that category except for maybe, you know, NBC Sunday night booth that would really... <laughs> That would really, you know, be a signal of, yeah, we're in this game, too. That's that. that's a good point. I will say that their audience has actually been up the last two years. I think it's a, I think it's totally fair to say it's a smaller place in the sports TV football universe than it was. Uh, certainly, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you're right. It is an announcement. And I think that's what I think at the end of the day, there's a couple things paying announcers a couple of reasons you pay announcers that kind of money one is you're paying hundreds of millions if not billions of dollars to the nfl so you just want the game to sound good right you really want it to be you want it to be announced well if you're going to pay all that money but the second thing is is exactly what you say those guys become faces of the network and if you're in the fourth place you know, NFL broadcast booth, just in terms of quality, just purely in terms of quality of games, putting Romo on there is 
is a way to say, oh, oh, wow, that doesn't look like fourth place anymore. That looks like something else. There's also this game theory going on because we're about to redo all these NFL rights deals. And there's a lot of thinking that maybe Disney wants some part of a Sunday package. They want to get back. They want it. Actually, they haven't been on that in a long time. They, they would want to get some slice of Sunday football. Maybe it's a big package like CBS's package. Maybe it's some small thing. And they also want to get in the Super Bowl rotation. So they are signaling not just to viewers, pay attention to us, but to the NFL. Hey, we got the best guy. Now, why don't you think about us and allow us to pay you a whole bunch of money so that we get better football games? Oh. And, and, that, and that makes a certain amount of sense. You know, the problem is all that's going to happen after Tony Romo would probably sign a contract. So if you're Romo, there's a scenario where you do that and Disney gets back in the game and you're calling a Super Bowl every four years and, and all that stuff. And maybe your maybe your portfolio game changes. There's also a scenario where you're just calling Monday Night Football as it is right now. And you have some, you know, Bengals, Jaguars style Monday nights, which <laughs> wouldn't be quite as fun. The uh, couple more points on Romo. One is you have heard the term highest paid sportscaster ever thrown around. Mm -hmm. Can I be can I be the annoying uh, sports oh, media please. person here? Please. So that John Madden contract you mentioned in 1994, he made $8 million a year. We have to adjust that for inflation. Romo is not trying to beat $8 million a year. And the equivalent now is $14 million. Eight million in 1994 is 14 million dollars today. So I'm not sure we should care who's number one ever, but if we do, the number is 14 million. If the people who write about movies can adjust for inflation, then the people who write about <laughs> sports media can adjust for inflation. So that's good. I'll also note this is my favorite, my favorite Madden note ever. Actually, I got two. Favorite Madden note number one is that in 1994 he was paid more than any player in the NFL. <laughs> right wow so the real equivalent is romo making like 40 million dollars a year yeah for me Romo leaving the romo making more than he made as a quarterback yes and making more than you know aaron Rodgers makes as a quarterback right now so wow. that that's incredible number two is when madden was being courted by three networks in 1993 1994 nbc came to him and said Here's our offer. We're going to give you a bunch of money. And because you don't like to fly, we're going to build you a train car. This sounds like an <laughs> Agatha Christie thing, but it's real. We're going to build you a train car that will carry you around the country. That was yes. part of the offer. Uh, David's recent ringer re renegotiation also included the offer of the train car. But David, uh, David had other priorities. The, um, no, I'm actually on a train right now, believe it or not. The sound, the, <laughs> the sound muffling thought, capabilities we have these days are incredible. I thought I heard fine china uh, being laid out before you for your afternoon meal. The um, Here's my other point about Tony Romo. Tony Romo is now in the point of his career where the money is so beguiling and the, the free agency and we're all kind of playing woj about him. The people, I think, have stopped listening to Tony Romo call a game. Mm -hmm. It's like, he's the greatest. Let's give him money. Here's the thing I'd say about him. When he has a wide open, high scoring offensive game like he did last week, KC versus Houston, he yeah. is absolutely at his best because he can wrap his arms around that telestrator and tell a great story. He's less good when he has a defensive battle. 
If you watch last year's Super Bowl, Tony Romo was not that great because he couldn't tell the story of the game via offensive excellence, right? He couldn't do that. And I think if it had been another announcer doing that game, they would have seen where that game was going and they would be like, okay, we're going to grab defensive tackle Aaron Donald, Kyle Van Noy, and we're just going to show them every play. And we are going to tell the story of this game as being a defensive battle. I don't think Romo is as good at that at this point in his career. He may be coming, but whenever I'd be making claims that Romo is better than Madden or better than all this, I would just say Romo's really, really good at one kind of game right now. And I'd love to see him get better at other kind of games as he goes along. Well, that's that that kind of starts getting at a bigger point, which is that, you know, if ESPN has to pay whatever $14 million to get Tony Romo, you know, and they get him that I'm sure they will see that as a victory. But when the tide eventually, you know, when when everyone eventually turns on Tony Romo, you know, which for yeah, announcers and color color now. commentators in particular, uh, I mean, Romo's Romo staved it off for the most part, uh, pretty pretty nimbly for you know his career so for his career in the booth so far. But when every when you know when we turn on him, ESPN is then going to be the company uh, who's paying fourteen million dollars to you know someone who's just <laughs> getting like dunked on on Twitter every you know every time he 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 calls a game. Um, and I'm sure that's not going to look too good on the uh, on the the spreadsheets. Elsewhere in the sports media transactions column, how about Barstool? Our pal Peter Kafka, who's great, had a report in Recode that Barstool, yeah, those guys may soon have a new owner, which Kafka calls a low-profile casino operator. <laughs> Quoting Kafka here, sources say the Chernin Group, which currently owns Barstool, is in advance talks to sell a majority stake in the company to pin national gaming, which has 41 properties in 19 States industry observers expect pin national, which operates such properties as the Hollywood casino in Bangor, Maine and the Greek town casino hotel in Detroit. You know, two places I often take my family to adopt barstool, the barstool brand for at least some of its operation. So barstool, the casino, what say you, Ha. Um uh what, what did he call it? A a a, a medium tier what? Was that <laughs> <laughs> It was a low profile casino operator. Okay, sorry. We're getting that wrong. Um first things first, to all the low profile casino operators out there, uh <laughs> David Shoemaker's uh, bank account is open for business. Um, yes. Uh yeah, I mean it's it's a little bit I mean it listen, it's an easy punchline. Um it's an easy joke to make, uh, although, you know, with, with all of the money casinos make, particularly in the new age of sports betting, um, it's not surprising that, I mean, that, that even someone who, a, a gambling outfit that we might not be, you know, wildly familiar with is interested in bidding for even what it, what is, you know, what seems to be a very profitable, uh, you know, website and internet, you know, presence in the, kind of sports media world um barstool seems like sort of a natural fit and you know they're gonna get as much money from whoever ends up you know whoever ends up buying from them buying them than they would get from whoever you perceive to be the big players that would have been a more that would have been a you know a a, a more expected match Um, it's their tony romo is it not yeah (laughs) yeah exactly i i just 
you know, I mean, we can talk about the journalistic integrity or, you know, the ethics of this sort of pairing or whatever else. I'm not sure that it's really worth wasting our breath. No. Um, this is this is uh, I mean, for Barstool in particular, I'm not sure that this would come as any kind of this pairing comes would it come as any kind of shock. Um yeah. You know they're already testing out. I mean, we're, we're they already have a bunch of gambling content. I mean, the Ringer has gambling content too, but they have you know. They're, they're, but Barstool is definitely already making a push in this direction, and um, you know, this is not something we that that you know we serious journalists should be proud of. But this is this may be you know the direction a lot of a lot of places like Barstool <laughs> end up going. Right? I didn't know you were going to broaden it out to we're all going to be owned by low profile casino operators. At some point, uh, listen. If if the ring if the ringer got bought, it probably by a low profile casino casino operator too. If we got bought by a casino operator, I'm not. I mean, who knows? Maybe maybe the maybe we get bought out by DraftKings or something. I don't know. But it's not. I mean, you know, we're working on we're working with very different, you know, very different degrees of uh, of of wealth in our in our respective ledgers here. You know, I mean, it's this is a it's a it's a sort of frightening new world. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I'm not. I don't think we're all going to be owned by casinos anytime soon. But you know, we we talk a whole lot about about outlets going under and journalists losing their jobs. You know, <laughs> the fact that money's coming back in the other direction, even such as it is in this story, is is uh, you know, it's something. I don't really know. I don't really know what the end of that sentence is. You were joking earlier when you said my DMs are open. If there's any casinos out there, if the press box sold itself as a branding vehicle, don't you think our our highest upside would be the newsstand at the airport. Like, you know, you know, when you walk it through the airport, you see the newsstand, you're like, I wasn't totally sure that that magazine or newspaper was still publishing. And yet it's the brand name of the newsstand. I kind of think we could be competitive in that space. Oh yeah, please. I mean, I mean, what's more valuable than an airport newsstand? I mean, you if you when you when you get to the airport and you realize you like, you know, left your novel at home, there's only one option. You got to go in there. You got to buy your trail mix and your like U.S. News and World Report or whatever. Gummy peaches, man. That's that's I'm 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 in. I'm at some nutter butters. Get me through the flight. Let's one more transaction, David. That's House of Highlights. Oh, yeah. Because over in Variety, there's a piece saying that ESPN has signed another free agent, not Romo, not a broadcaster, not a writer, but 25-year-old Omar Raja, who created House of Highlights. Brian Steinberg writes, Raja's game is figuring out how to get sports fans chatting about, liking, and passing along the video clips he makes of top athletes and plays. And that may be the skill most in demand at ESPN, perhaps in the TV industry at large, in a future likely to be dominated by new video-watching behaviors. Comes from Bleacher Report. His Instagram has 15 million followers. And Steinberg says he will serve as the main voice of ESPN's Sports Center Instagram account. What do you make of that move by ESPN? We talked about him before, I think, when these rumors first started floating around. I mean, this is just sort of, this is, you know, there's this kind of big variety story about this. And, and you know, he's officially been signed by ESPN and starting his job. I mean, it makes a lot of sense for ESPN. Um, and it certainly makes a lot of sense for for Raja, who's uh, you know been incredibly successful thus far in his career. And um, according to you know this piece, according to Raja himself, he's kind of still just doing the same thing he's always been doing, just like you know calling cool clips for that people are going to enjoy to watch, enjoy watching. But he's just doing it over at ESPN now. Uh, I 
you know, there's also a quote in the piece that says ESPN, expe- ESPN expects him to help plot the strategy for hundreds of new live programs the company's created for digital outlets. I mean, hundreds. Uh, Hundreds. Hundred, I mean, and one wonders, you know, if he's <laughs> fully aware of what's being expected of him. I mean, listen, if he's going to be the fall guy for the failure of, of ESPN Digital Take 100 or whatever, then I'm sure he's getting paid well enough to to, to do that, to be that guy. Um, but, you know, and, and, and honestly, like he is in, in a very specific, uh, in a very real way in, in new media he is he made it he is the best there is at what he does right i mean there, i mean he's he's been incredibly successful at what he does so far how that translates to not just the creation of a hundred new tv shows which is a lot to think about but how that translates into just the espn boardroom you know is an open question and uh <laughs> yes and we will I, I mean i guess it remains to be seen i mean there's you know i don't think he's I, I mean i i I presume they're going to give him some runway and, and you know, going to find out really what he has to offer because because he I'm sure he has a lot to offer a company like ESPN. But as we've seen before, you kind of hire a company with it's kind of with as much institutional uh, legacy as ESPN. It's not always the easiest fit to hire someone who's just sort of working in their own vertical and trying to, like, subtly affect everything else that's already going on. So, uh, you know. Best of luck to the guy, and and good for ESPN for going out and hiring the biggest name in the in the you know in a in a area of need. Um, but we'll, you yeah. know, we'll see what happens. There's been a couple of stages I feel of ESPN evolution. One is them kind of subtly, not so subtly, going post text. You know, you had that generation of print guys who really ran a lot of the network. Vince Doria, John Walsh, even John Skipper, leave mm-hmm. the network. Writers getting laid off. You mentioned that that felt like one stage. And then I think the next stage is at some point, and, and maybe it's a long time from now, maybe it's tomorrow is not only post text, but post TV. And what do we do? You know, what is ESPN in that universe? So this just strikes me as like, this is like, this is the guy that's going to help us figure it out. And maybe we don't have the answer right now, but Maybe the answer is hundreds of TV shows. Does ESPN even have a hundred shows currently? That's a lot of shows, hundreds of TV shows, but maybe this is the guy who, and maybe it's not a show, right? It's like some product. Here's a three minute something or other. Here's a 30 second Mm -hmm. something or other. And he figures out how to do that. It's really interesting. And, And if you're those guys, you want people like that in your literal or figurative boardroom, helping you think through that stuff. Yeah, Absolutely. What do we I mean, do? I was going to say I was going to say that this won't be the last time that, that his name comes up on this podcast for sure. Um, but it very well may just be coming. I mean, we, we, we may spend more time talking about what the shape of content looks like. I mean, I'm sure we will. The shape of what the shape of content looks like over the next year, two years, six months, even, you know, I mean, it's a it's a it's going to be a whole different landscape, especially for a company like like ESPN that, you know, has a lot of different audiences uh, accessing, you know, they're in. I want to talk to you a little bit about Stuart Scott, David. Please. Because this month marks the five-year anniversary of the death of the former sports center anchor. I've got an oral history of his life and death up on the ringer right now. It's fantastic. Thank you so much. We can't talk about Stu Scott without hearing Stu Scott, right? It's just stupid. It, it, you, you have to hear him to understand him, to appreciate him. So here he is in 2006 doing highlights from Kobe Bryant's 81 point game i'll just let this run for a while 
Enjoy. Let's do it. Now, last time they met, Kobe Bryant had a season low 11 points. Second quarter, Chris Mann backdoor to Kobe, who just yokes it. Now, Kobe leads the league, scoring 34.8 points per game. Lakers, though, down 14 in recess. Second half, Kobe Bryant went off. Uh, command center, this is Kangaroo Boxer requesting permission to fire. Kangaroo Boxer permission granted. 7 of 13 from 3 land. Late third quarter, Kobe. Half some, another 3. This is about to get silly. It's his 13th 40-point game this year. Third quarter, some bunnies with a Baduka dunk. His fifth 50-point game this season. Time winding down the third. Lamar Odom wide open. Kobe, who rocks the rim. Lakers up four. Now fourth quarter. This is just straight silliness. Kobe Bryant, first player since Jordan in 87. Two 60-point games in one season. But earlier this season, he had like 62 and then sat the fourth quarter. On the line with 62, there's Kobe's new career high, 63. Later in the quarter, you know, Lakers owner Jerry Buss said, quote, you're watching, and it's like a miracle unfolding in front of your eyes, and you can't accept it. Somehow the brain doesn't work. Kobe Bryant, cut it out at 70. <laughs> a couple things. Number one, Roy Williams coach over the university of North Carolina told me this. I don't, I didn't even put it in the oral history, but he said this to me, which I thought was so great. When you, when you think of Stuart Scott, you smile. And when you hear Stuart Scott's voice do highlights, it is impossible not to smile. It is impossible. Like he was that his enjoyment. You heard it there at the end. Kobe Bryant is, he's the guy who was like, I can't wait to tell you about what happened in sports tonight. Mm -hmm. I am so excited because I am a fan like you. So that's number one, just that enthusiasm. Number two there, did you notice, David, that as great and as beguiling as those catchphrases were that were sprinkled throughout that minute and change we listened to, did yeah. you notice the statistics and information yes. were just as gaudy as the catchphrases? Mm -hmm. And that a Stuart Scott sportscast, I think gets misremembered, by the way, by me too, before I started this whole piece, it's like Stuart Scott was just great at everything. He wasn't yeah, he gr was. just great at catchphrase. He was great. At he was, he understood how to tell a story, how to stud it with just enough information, just enough catchphrases, how to put emotion into it. And, and again, like that runs for like, a minute plus it ran it you watch it on youtube it runs for another minute that dude could do everything on sports television and yeah I, th that's why he's that pantheon level sports center anchor it's true i mean it's it's hard to find words that don't immediately just smack of cliche right i mean but there's but it's there was a you know it's enthusiasm it's authenticity there's it sounds it sounds so silly to say but like you know there's being doing doing what he did is so many people's dream job and it doesn't and and he managed to make it sound like he was doing his dream job but still do it like in the most perfect way right like mm -hmm. the enthusiasm was like so clear and uh you know his his um humanity i guess through his originality was always on was always on display but like you said it wasn't even if we think of the catchphrases, it wasn't at the expense of the actual like nuts and bolts of the job. He was excellent at that too. And um, the way that 
you know, I, we, we've talked about him before on the show. I mean, his influence has been profound and not always strictly positive, you know, I mean, just because a lot of people have, have kind of learned isolated lessons from him and not just the kind of lessons of, ex of excellence. But you talk to a lot of people in your piece. Uh, Michael Smith, uh, you know, is one of the big voices in there um, who talk about the level of the amount of like inspiration that he uh, provided for for, uh, you know, viewers for up and coming sportscasters, black ones in particular. And, um, you know, it's it's hard to uh, I mean, it, that that's just one thing, you know, that you that, that, that can be focused in on because Stuart Scott certainly was um, an inspiration to everybody. But but like I said, it's just like for someone that embodies so many cliches, but proves them out, you know, but like you can use all these like just words with without any hesitation, any reservation. It's it just says everything you need to know about about him as a, as a man, as a sportscaster. Yeah, I just think when you say it does sound like a cliche to say, be yourself on television. It also turns out that that's the hardest thing to do on television is be yourself. Mm -hmm not try to sound like some guy who came before you. It turns out it's even harder when you arrive at ESPN in 1993 and it's not an especially diverse company. You know, mm -hmm. there's nobody. He wasn't the first black anchor on ESPN, but there's nobody that looks and sounds like you on ESPN. Mm -hmm. So you're trying to be yourself and be totally different than everybody else who's come before you. Like that level of difficulty is incredible. And the other thing to remember is, you know, I feel now if you ran into the pushback that Stuart Scott got at ESPN, you'd say, okay, this isn't working. I'm going to go work for this other network, or I'm going to go be on Twitter, or I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to, I just have these other places I can go and take my, take my talents to use the LeBron James phrase. That mm -hmm. didn't really exist in the same way, you know, minus a few random times that Fox tried to compete with ESPN. Like that wasn't a possibility. So when he in the nineties is saying like, no, no, this is me. I'm not going to change. I'm not going to not be myself on the air. He didn't have a place to go. Like, you know, the, the place to go was you don't have a job or the place to go was go back to local television. And I think that under underlines the, you know, just how profound that decision was that he made at that point in time. Yeah, it's also, and I, I'll, I mean, you wrote that everyone should go read this piece. I, my very limited uh, um, interaction with the story before it was published was as the art director, and I was working with uh, Sean Fennessy, um, our esteemed uh, boss, to do some photo research on the piece, and. You know, if you would ask me, I might have remembered a little bit of it, but I had basically forgotten just how cool he was. Just how, like looking back at old photos of him through his prime where he's like hobnobbing with celebrities, just like cracking up on the sideline with just like the most elite athletes of the day. Uh, you know, he could do his job putting the microphone in front of Paul Pierce as he was, you know, ho hoisting the, you know, the championship trophy, but also just like just you know like i said be doubled over in laughter with with uh, athletes of that caliber at the after party you know i mean he was just uh just just such a huge presence um and i'm so glad you did this piece and by the way that was something he was criticized for was that was the was hobnobbing with athletes at that time that was seen as this big breach in journalist subject ethics 
you why are you shaking hands? Why are you giving these guys a hug? Why are you shaking hands with these guys? Like there were people who said that. Like today, nobody would care about that. It wouldn't even make a difference. But it is, and I, and I didn't get into it a ton here, just in terms of space and in terms of what I was focusing on. But there is a really unhappy trail of Stuart Scott clippings in America's major newspapers. They're oh, really yeah, bad. I bet. And just, and again, some of it was clearly coded language. Um, yeah. I think I, some of it was just stupid. I think I, somebody who said, oh, well, you know, he didn't, you know, he was, his act wasn't worthy of the WB network. Oh, I wonder why you chose that example. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of it too was just, just picking on him relentlessly. Like people that didn't even write about media, just continually mentioning him just over and over and over again. And, you know, what a time capsule of the mid and late 90s. The reaction to Stuart Scott uh, yeah. is as much as anything. All right, David, let's do a little listener mail. First one comes from James Raddick. We talked earlier this week about the whole idea of political kayfabe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> kayfabe, kayfabe, David, for listeners just turning in is? The big lie in pro wrestling. It's the adherence to the, the you know, the, the show in, uh, against the truth. You are in character, right? Yes. Uh, listener James Raddick writes in, I feel it should be brought to your attention that Nate Silver also brought up kayfabe on the 538 political politics reaction pod, but pronounced oh, no. it kafabe. <laughs> kafabe. Mm. That's why you need a wrestling guy on your post-politics podcast. <laughs> I'm glad that's where we went we, with that. Yes. Well, we don't make those mistakes around here. Uh, this note comes from Phil Senderowitz. Phil writes, not news related, but the best pun I've seen lately, cast cafeteria at Disney's new Galaxy's Edge Park is called Admiral Snack Bar. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Admiral Snack Bar. Bravo, Disney. That that almost deserves a whole binge mode episode. Can we get (laughs) get Mallory and (laughs) Jason on the line? Admiral Snack Bar. Wow. Unbelievable. And then finally, David, last week we talked about the phenomenon when two funny things get smashed together in your Twitter feed. Oh, yeah. And they just happen, right? Or the algorithm sort of pulls it in. I think the example was World War Three slash WW3 getting mixed together with Weight Watchers tweets. Mm -hmm. Uh, We asked, what should we call this phenomenon? We got a lot of suggestions. Seth Sommerfeld said it should be called Synchronicifeed. Synchronicifeed. Oh, I like that. An account called Heapings of Jim, something we also have over here at the press box, Heapings of Jim, <laughs> said it should be called Malgorithm. Oh, I like Mal-go-rhythm. that. Uh, Joe Sheehan and James Raddick, again, say it should be called Serendipitweet. Serendipitweet. But I think I'm ready to declare a winner. Kirk A. Beto, one of our pals, longtime listener, says it should be called The Juxtapost. Juxtapost. Oh, yes. That's the winner. That's yeah, it. for sure. Anyway, congratulations, Kirk. All right, time for David Shoemaker guesses <laughs> a strain pun headline. Okay. And last week's headline attached to a paper about college and siblings was called, Oh, Brother, Where Start Thou? As usual, our listeners were funnier than we were. Ya boy Orbison says it should be called, Oh, Brother, Where Art School? <laughs> Jeff Newman says, Oh brother, where Bachelor of Art thou? Misty Mountain Hot says, Oh brother, where liberal arts thou? 
Yes. Today's headline is pretty incredible. It comes from Chris Fleischer. Once again, we're exploiting, David, the comedy stylings of academic papers. Because oh this gosh. is from volume 57 of Economic Inquiry, something I know that's on your nightstand. The uh, paper in question has three authors. It's about male pattern baldness. Something no, no. neither you nor I has ever thought about. No, sir. Not once. <laughs> the uh, author surveyed balding men to see how much they would pay in order to have hair again. The answer apparently was $30,000, $30,000. Um, I want you to put aside the, the, that number for a second. Think of balding men. How much uh-huh. would they pay to have hair again? What was economic inquiries strained pun headline? Oh uh, God, um, man, I I'm I cannot think how so much you'd pay. Plugs. What form uh, would new, yeah, what form would to pay? Oh, oh oh oh, uh, a high a high price to pay. Uh, <laughs> steep uh, uh, the price to pay. What what is yeah. it? Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna declare victory. Willingness to pay. Oh, that's great. Willingness to pay. Congratulations to the uh, comedians over there at Economic Inquiry. Do you get economic in- <laughs> economic? Do you get economic inquiry at your house? I think I let my my subscription lapse, and I apologize for that. <laughs> he is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Research by Chris Almeida and Erica Cervantes. Production magic by Jim Cunningham. We're back next Tuesday with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you, Brian. David, Mm -hmm. I request a meeting with you. Okay. No, no, this is me. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. In a way, here, let me answer my own question. Yeah. Wow. Whew. Did you make some Nutter Butters? Some stuff that's being, you know, gussied up to make what our moms watching MSNBC mad. <laughs> yes. But Were you as amazed as I was by the sequencing of this? Mm-hmm. <laughs>